the Buddha said often that his teaching was only about two things. It was about suffering and the end of suffering. And in regard to the first, he said that our job in regard to suffering is to understand it. And it really means to understand it fully. When we consider this in the context of our daily life, this task can seem complicated, uh, unending, a little bit overwhelming. And we look around at our friends and our family and, and we may feel something similar. Because as we look around, you know, we may have people in all sorts of different uh, difficulties in life situations. And we ourselves may have been in very difficult life situations. So you know, it's not uncommon that we have a friend who has uh, become addicted to drugs or one, you know, one of our children and we don't know how to reach them to move them out of that. Or we may be bringing up a family and we lose our job and our home becomes in jeopardy with all the foreclosures that are, that are happening. And that situation seems overwhelming. Um, we may find as we look around the society that there are uh, different currents in society that seem unworkable, the political polarization that's happening uh, in this country and, and around the world today seems almost insoluble. And the, the difficulties of violence in all its forms, of racism and injustice and the suffering of poverty all around the world, what do we, what do, we do? How do we understand that? It's very difficult. But when we come on retreat, the situation becomes simpler. And the suffering becomes, becomes workable. And this is one of the beauties of the life in retreat because we can leave behind some of that complexity. And I think as I come into retreat, suffering comes down to basically three things. One is physical pain. And I'm sure you all have experienced that, felt that, know that meditation isn't able to solve it in all cases, but it can help us learn to relate to it. So a very frequent source of suffering in retreat situation is our reaction to physical pain. And this is a good learning ground because it will be with us in our life as well. The second kind of suffering is emotional pain or mental pain. And there are so many different varieties here. Qualities like um, desire and wanting, longing, yearning, Hatred, aggression, despair, depression, jealousy, loneliness, envy, pride, sadness, grief, sorrow, embarrassment, shame, guilt, confusion. There are more, <laughs> right? We're vulnerable, aren't we? And we, know, we all know all of these. In the Mahayana teachings, uh, these are described as afflictive emotions. That's a nice term because when these states assail us, we are afflicted by them. We suffer on account of them. They cause us pain. And in the Mahayana descriptions, there are said to be 84,000 of these states. So, but those texts were written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> And life has gotten a lot more complicated since. There must be at least twice that many now. 
So all these different forms of emotional pain come to us. They come in our daily life. They also come here while we're on retreat. And for most of us, I think these are the most common and probably intense forms of our personal suffering, the different kinds of emotions that that visit us. So this is really what I want to talk to tonight, how to work with these difficult and afflictive emotions, source of so much pain in our life here and outside. Then there's a third kind of suffering that we have as meditators that normal people in daily life don't have. We're very privileged, you could say, to have this third kind of pain. And that is the pain of uh, meditative frustration. We sit down, we direct the mind to be present, we pick up our anchor. Does it stay there? No, of course not. So it wanders off. When it comes back, we often feel some degree of disappointment, discouragement, frustration, anger, self-judgment. All those things that we are subject to because we've taken a meditative path. If you were to go ask the person in the street in Barrie, did your mind wander much today? (laughs) A, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. And B, if you explained it to them, they really wouldn't care. So as meditators, we have this third kind of high-class suffering, which is the suffering of the wandering mind. But it's primarily the difficult emotions that assail us that um, are most of the suffering in our human life. So that's what I want to talk about. The beautiful thing about mindfulness practice is that it gives us very immediate tools to begin to relate to these states. In the long run, the promise is that they can be uprooted through the different stages of awakening and be completely removed from the mind. The Buddha said that they are cut off like a palm stump, no longer subject to future arising. But that is a very high level of attainment. And if you aren't, you know, an an arhant yet, you wouldn't be familiar with that. I'm not familiar with that. So for us, for a long time in our spiritual practice, we're not going to be rid of these states. I used to think that was really disappointing. When I began meditation, I thought, I'll clear this up in a few years. It didn't, didn't work that way for me. But you never know. I'm not saying what's going to happen for you. So you never know. So I had to take a different approach, which was to learn how to find some freedom in relation to these states when they came. And that is possible. It is possible for all of us and all of you who have this level of commitment to find that through the practice of mindfulness and its supporting factors. So this is what I want to talk about tonight, how we develop that kind of freedom in relationship to these difficulties. As we explore the the range of mind through meditation, we find out we don't really have to be afraid of what we're going to find there. When I came into meditation, I really was afraid of my emotions and the the range of them. But just having observed them and survived them for many years, most of that fear has, has gone away. And this is possible for all of us. 
This is from Pema Chodron. In all kinds of situations, we can find out what is true simply by studying ourselves in every nook and cranny, in every black hole and bright spot, whether it's murky, creepy, splendid, spooky, frightening, joyful, inspiring, peaceful, or wrathful. We can just look at the whole thing. There's a lot of encouragement to do this, and meditation gives us the method. So this is part of our project here on retreat, part of the the work of each one of us. The more fully we're able to take it up, the more freedom will unfold within our experience, even before we're enlightened. There's a great deal of freedom available even before uh, that effect of enlightenment. This area in working with mind states traditionally comes under uh, what's called the third foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the mindfulness of mind. The word that's used for mind, the Pali word, is citta. It's spelled C-I-T-T-A, and it's pronounced citta. So this is the realm of citta nupassana, mindfulness of mind. And this word citta, to be sure we're on the same page, it doesn't refer to mind as just the thinking mind, but it refers to mind as the thinking and feeling mind both. One word in Pali refers to what we might call heart and mind. So we're talking about the emotions as well as the thought process when we use this word citta. So sometimes we'll call it heart-mind. Sometimes we'll talk about getting in touch with our heart. Sometimes we'll just use the word mind. Tonight I'll probably mostly just use the word mind, but I want you all to be clear I'm talking about heart and mind, emotions and thoughts together, not, not separating them. The Buddha didn't separate them so much. This is understood in uh, Asian countries as well. If you go to a Buddhist country and you ask a person where their mind is, they tend to point to the center of their chest. If you ask someone in the West, where's your mind, they'll normally point to the head. That's not true in Asian countries. They'll point to the center of the chest. There's a nice little story about this. You know, there's been a lot of interest lately, a lot of research in uh, neuroscience on the effects of meditation. And you don't need to have neuroscience to prove to you the effects of meditation because you know it firsthand. But in this culture, scientists really are the high priests. And there's a lot of the population that will only listen to something when the high priests say that it's actually true. So it's very, very helpful for getting the Dharma out to a wide audience that the scientists validate through their research the effects of meditation that you know for yourselves firsthand. One of the foremost researchers in this field is Dr. Richard Davidson, who teaches at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He was really a pioneer of this whole field. And what he may not tell his colleagues, but uh, is true, is that he was a Vipassana meditator before he was a neuroscience researcher. And his motive for doing the science was to give this empirical validation of the effects of meditation that he already knew. So there's a nice connection between him and this community. He's helped us on retreats here for scientists to introduce them to meditation. 
And Richie is the one who uh, did the groundbreaking experiments with the Tibetan monks where advanced practitioners would enter these MRI machines and they'd look at the activity of their brains and discover that they were kind of off the charts in areas like compassion and stillness and um, meditative uh, states of concentration. So through his work with the Tibetan community, Ritchie became quite close to the Dalai Lama. They're actually pretty good, pretty good friends now. And one time the Dalai Lama invited him over to India, to his home in Dharamsala, to demonstrate some of the research to the Tibetan monastic community there. It wasn't practical to take over an MRI machine. I mean, those things are like bigger than a station wagon. So what he took was a scaled down uh, scientific test equipment, which consists of a leather cap that has rows of leather strips with electrodes embedded in them. And the electrodes go down and touch the brain, or sorry, touch the scalp at many different points. And then there are wires connected to every electrode that trail off the back of the cap and come down in a bundle to plug into a computer. As the subject is asked to do different tasks, those tasks trigger brain activity in different areas, and the electrodes can record roughly what area of the brain is being stimulated for the different tasks. And then those signals are sent to the computer, which analyzes and kind of maps the brain activity in relation to the task they're performing. It's sort of a poor man's MRI, you might say. This is the equipment that Ritchie took to Dharamsala to demonstrate and His Holiness was on the stage, and Ritchie was on the stage, and 500 Tibetan monks were in the audience. And Ritchie was wearing this cap and talking about how they were trying to measure what was happening in the mind by measuring the activity in the brain, the electrical signals. So he got done with the lecture, and he put the cap down, and all the monks broke out laughing. And Ritchie was sure that they were laughing because he looked so silly in this black leather cap with... You know, dozens of wires trailing off. But that wasn't why. One of the monks told him why they were laughing. And he said, it's because you're trying to measure the mind by putting the cap here when everybody knows the mind is located here. <laughs> they just thought that was a crack up. These scientists were really missing, missing the boat. So it is interesting, in the Buddhist tradition, generally it's understood that the seat of consciousness is in the heart center. And this is something you can play with. But it, does, it gives us kind of an interesting way to hold our thoughts. They're not necessarily just originating here. But there's something more profound going on at, at the heart. So this is a sense of citta. It encompasses both heart and mind activity, and this is the area of the third foundation. The best translation, I think, for citta actually is psyche. Psyche also has that sense of all the, the moods as well as thoughts, but it's a little cumbersome and mind is, is shorter, so that's what we'll generally talk about. If there are 84,000 afflictive emotions that we uncover through meditation, I think there are also 84,000 beautiful emotions. We'll talk about these in a lot more detail as the retreat goes on. Usually in the early days of the retreat, the difficult emotions are a little more obvious. 
So we'll start talking about the difficulties as the retreat unfolds. We'll go much more into the, into the beautiful. In order to develop, to develop a greater freedom in relation to these emotions, there are really uh, two shifts that are needed. One is a shift in attitude. We kind of pointed to this on the first night by talking about this quality of allowing. And this is the attitude shift we really need in relation to our difficult emotions. First, when they come on retreat, we really don't want them. I mean, that was certainly my experience. I didn't come to meditation to experience anger and fear and desire and all of that. I came to be peaceful and find love. But this is part of what comes as we deepen. All these states come through. We need to get familiar with them. So we have to open to them. We have to allow them. If we have a sense they shouldn't be there, we'll be always in uh, some kind of conflict with them. So this is an important question to check as you start to touch these difficult emotions. Is there an attitude of accepting that it's okay for them to be there? Really important. Then the second piece is we need to develop greater understanding of them. We need to understand their nature. And this means not only their, their individual nature, you know, how, how anger feels, how disappointment feels, how depression feels, but we also need to understand their universal nature because like all conditioned things, they're subject to the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. We start to see that these three characteristics apply to our emotions like they do to every phenomenon that arises. The impermanence lets us know that they won't stay forever. It's why it's safe to open to them. They come, and if we leave them alone, they'll also go. They're unsatisfactory, and that's, that's clear in this case. And they're also not who you are. They're not you, and they're not even yours. They belong to the human heart-mind, of which we are instances, but we are not unique owners of these emotions. And the emotions are not unique to us. We all know these things. So this is just part of nature. Just like our bodies are part of nature and not all that different, our heart-mind is part of nature and we're not that different from one another. So we start to understand this about these emotions. We don't have to claim them as I or mine. So in working, I want to describe in a little more detail how to work with these states. The first step is knowing what we're feeling. If we don't know that, it's very difficult to begin to make a relationship. But this is not as easy as it sounds. We're not generally taught this in this culture. You know, I didn't learn it from my parents or my school teachers or my university professors. Nobody sat me down and said, Guy, what are you feeling now? When this person said that to you, how did that make you feel? And when you felt like that, what emotions were connected? I didn't have those kind of dialogues across the dinner table at my parents' home. So I grew up really unaware of this inner landscape, and it was only when I started to meditate that I realized I needed to learn what this was all about, because there was a whole world in there that I really uh, became fascinated with and 
wanted to understand, needed to understand. I think it, one of the greatest gifts we could give the world would be to let children learn what their emotions are when they're still not afraid of them. You know how kids will just let anything rip through them. They don't hold back at all. They're open to feeling anything. And if we can educate them at that point in their lives, they'll grow up with a lot of emotional intelligence. One of the projects I'm really very uh, excited about is based in Oakland, and it's called Mindful Schools. And what uh, is, has happened is that some Vipassana meditators have put together an organization that's dedicated to taking mindfulness training into public and private schools. And they've now trained something like a thousand people to go in and teach. And in some cases they've gotten grants to do the work. In some cases they've gotten funding from the schools because it does have real benefits for the children. And they've been successful in teaching in elementary schools and middle schools. So that's like, you know, probably ages about 10 to uh, 15 or so. So this is wonderful. Um, one of the teachers goes in and the students love to see her coming. They call her Miss Mindfulness. Oh good, Miss Mindfulness is coming today. And at the end of the training, you know, the kids have asked, you know, what they appreciate about it, if they enjoyed it. And one of them said, I love to be mindful because if I do it before I go to bed, I get really happy and I have a wonderful night's sleep. Or if I'm really mindful, I don't feel like hitting my little sister. <laughs> so this is really unfolding in a lovely way and I think the potential is, is great here. And then there's another, another school that's developing. One of our Sangha members near Spirit Rock in Marin in, in California has started what is essentially a Dharma preschool because she found enough parents in the area who wanted their kids to grow up learning the Dharma. So she's got three to five-year-olds and she's got 20 of them and she has them five mornings a week and she teaches them Dharma. She teaches them yoga and spiritual stories and some chanting and yoga and finally a little bit of meditation. And I'll say more about that, but she's gotten them to love silence. So they'll have meals, they'll have their lunch for 30 minutes and 20, three, four and five year olds will be quiet while they eat because they've gotten to love the process of just being present. It's kind of magic, you know, it's hard to imagine kids that age being quiet that long. It's kind of magic. So one of the meditations she led, I, I love this, she'd come to the end of a yoga session and she'd have them lie on their backs. I guess that's the corpse pose. And um, she said, you can't use words like, you know, mindfulness and awareness and attention. That's too abstract for them. So she leads them with imagery. And she said, uh, she'd have them lie on their back, close their eyes, and she said, imagine a big lake. You're, you're floating in a big lake and through the lake are swimming all kinds of fishes. So you just let all the fishes swim around and there might be a happy fish and a sad fish and a jealous fish and an angry fish and a loving fish. You just let all the fishes swim through, but you're not any of them. You're the water. 
Let yourself be as wide as the water and just let all the fishes swim through. Whatever fish is coming, you just let it swim through. And then after the meditation, she asked the kids to report. And this four-year-old boy said, um, it was pretty good. I could let all the fishes come, except I couldn't let the mad fish come. <laughs> and she said, well, why couldn't you let the mad fish come? And he said, well, when you don't know that you're the water, the mad fish makes you do things that hurt other people. Four-year-old boy. So it's beautiful. Kids are really ripe for this stuff, and it's, you know, it's going in there. So knowing what we're feeling doesn't necessarily come so easy to us, but we can learn it. We can learn to tune in and understand that. Here's an example. I was doing a long retreat here one year. I was sitting the six weeks. And I was a couple of weeks in, and so I was pretty present. I felt I was pretty concentrated. And I just finished a sitting in the hall. It was probably the 8.15 in the morning. And I was going outside for the walking period. And every walking period in the first two weeks, I'd walk down on the grassy paths in Yogi Park down there. I'd walked in the same spot every day for two weeks. So I leave the meditation hall, and I'm pretty with my stepping, lifting, moving, placing, going out the back of the hall, down the steps, lifting, moving, placing. I felt very present. I looked down at Yogi Park. There was somebody in my walking path. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> lifting, moving, placing. What's he doing there? Doesn't he know? I've walked there every period for two weeks, lifting, moving, placing. Did I cut in front of him in breakfast this morning? Is he playing some kind of head game with me? Lifting, moving, placing. He's not very sensitive. You know, if he was sensitive, he would have known that was my spot. Lifting, moving, placing. So I walked down to the grass. I found another patch of grass, which to my great surprise worked just as well. And so I was walking along and occasionally just cast him an evil glance. He just kept walking also. And it was about 30 minutes into the walking before I finally realized I'm angry. I had thought I was so mindful. I had really thought I was present with my steps and I was missing the biggest thing that was happening to me. I was pissed off. So once I I recognized that, I could work with it. I could relate to it and I could release it. Until I saw that, I was just enmeshed in it because I was believing the story I was telling myself. He was in my space, and he was wrong to be in my space because it was my space. Once I could see that, I could let go of those thoughts and the story, and then the whole thing was over. Next walking period, I beat him to it. (laughs) So order was restored. And this shows something, it showed something to me kind of uh, fundamental about these afflictive states that come. They're propped up by what I'd call a storyline or some belief or view. And Andrea alluded to this the other night in talking about releasing her anger. There was some belief I had that kept that anger in place and the belief was I was right and they were wrong. There was no real reason that he shouldn't have walked there. 
my name was not on that patch of grass. IMS had not deeded me that strip. It was open for everybody. So if I'd let go of that belief, I couldn't have sustained the anger. So when I did let go of it, the anger fell apart. But all, all these afflictive emotions have some kind of belief underpinning them that supports them. And that's what I call the storyline. And we'll come back to that. So one way to release the afflictive emotion is to give up the storyline. But what happens is that these, what was happening to me in that walking, I was fairly mindful, but the anger came in kind of like a low-flying aircraft that slips beneath our radar. I didn't have the radar up in the emotional terrain. I had it up in the physical domain, but it slipped into the emotions without my seeing it. And as long as I couldn't name it, I was just caught in it. So naming it, recognizing that it's present, is a really important first step for beginning to, to make a, a good relationship with it. So one way to think about this is that when these states come, we need to shift where our attention's pointing. My attention was pointing at the person in my walking path. And as long as it was pointed there, I was caught in my reaction. I had to turn the attention to look at what I was feeling. And then there was the potential to release it. So you could say that these hindrances, I mean, I, I think this is true, but I'm not going to state it categorically. You can play with it. Hindrances are a result of misplaced attention. We direct the attention outside to the situation instead of inside to what we're feeling. And that's what gives rise. That's what sustains these states. When we can uh, name what's happening, that's a recognition that we've turned the attention inwardly, and that's when we can start to work. Um, in in con conversations with some of these scientists who are doing research, I heard of one study, I can't tell you where, but a scientist told me about it, um, where they were investigating different ways to work with anger in people in daily life who had a problem with anger management. So they were looking at different kinds of intervention for people who had trouble acting out their anger. And one of the methods that they tried with them was to just get them to name anger when they noticed they were feeling it. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to try and be mindful of it. They didn't have to try to put an antidote in place. They didn't have to do anything else. Just name it. And that proved to be one of the most effective interventions that they worked with. So this power of naming it is part of the mindfulness practice. It's kind of like the noting. But with difficult emotions, it's so important because it shows there's not only anger there, there's also some kind of awareness that knows it. We're not just angry, we're also knowing it. And that knowing is a little bit of wisdom. So now all of a sudden there's not just anger, there's anger and awareness and wisdom. So the odds start to tilt in our favor at that point. There are a few states of mind in particular that I see a lot in my own practice and in meditators that I want to focus in on this evening. And I want to have you tell me what they are um, if you haven't heard this talk before. So I want to suggest that Afflictive emotions are bound up with time, 
in a way that the beautiful emotions aren't. With a beautiful emotion like love or joy, it can just arise spontaneously in a moment. You walk in, you see somebody, you feel a surge of loving kindness. Beautiful. Walk out the door, the sun is setting, there are these beautiful pink-red streak across the sky, joy comes up. Or you see someone with little sadness in their face or a few tears in the meditation hall, compassion comes through right in the moment. But for an afflictive emotion to be sustained and for it to cause suffering, it needs to be sustained. It depends on time. We have to get involved in time to keep these things going. Now, that's one of the features. The other of the features that difficult emotions revolve around is pleasure and pain. As human beings, we are subject to ever-changing flows of pleasure and pain in our normal experience. Andrea gave the instruction this morning on feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We'll leave the neutral out of this discussion. But this changing flow of pleasant and painful is just part of our um, human condition. And it's around these strong experiences that the difficult emotions come. So if you liked eighth grade algebra, I'm going to take you right back. I'm going to suggest we have a horizontal axis, which is time. And it's going to go from past to future, like that. And we're going to have a vertical axis that's about pleasure and pain. And it's going to go from painful up to pleasant. So that divides our territory for the afflictive emotions into four quadrants. And I'm going to ask you what the emotions are connected with those four quadrants. Okay, so let's start past and pleasant. That's this quadrant up here. So something that was in the past means it's not here now. Very pleasant, but it's gone. What's the emotion connected with that? Loss, nostalgia, sadness. Grief, right? That's where loss and grief come from, right? It was beautiful in the past, but we don't have it anymore. It could be a relationship. It could be a loved one. It could be someplace we lived, even some beautiful experience. We feel sad at the loss of that. It's pastness. It's goneness, okay? What about painful in the past? And I'm going to restrict it a little bit connected with another human being. What's the emotion that tends to arise around that recollection? Could be guilt. There's a strong anger. There's a stronger one, which is anger. If someone has hurt us, caused us pain in the past, then the emotion that constellates around that memory is anger. Guilt would be is if we had caused pain to someone else. So guilt is in that family also. Shame also. Yeah. So let's say anger is often the strongest or hardest of those. All right, let's go to the um, future scale. Something pleasant that's out in time in the future. What's the emotion? Craving. Craving. 
desire, wanting, hoping. That's a pleasant in the future, and that can get, we can get very bound up in that as well. What about unpleasant in the future? Fear, dread. This came through to me, it was actually just a few weeks ago, I had to make a presentation at the Marin County Board of Supervisors because Spirit Rock was putting forth a new master plan, building plans and uh, wanting to increase the number of people who could use our facility. So I had to make the main presentation to the Board of Supervisors where we were seeking approval. And for about two weeks before that presentation, I had this sense of dread about it. It really, it kind of surprised me because I don't, I don't mind speaking in public so much. It was fairly short. But there was something about the responsibility that felt like a burden. And there's sometimes hostile people in the public hearing phase of a proposal that will attack one. Um, and, all the, and, and the people I was talking to were not people I knew. So all of that contributed just this sense of dread about going and giving the presentation. But even though I dreaded it, I didn't mind the dread. I would rather not have had to do the presentation, but I didn't mind the fact that I dreaded it. So, you know, it was okay. And in the end, presentation went fine, Spirit Rock got approved. So we're moving forward with building plans um, as we speak. So these are the four, what I would call, kind of primal emotions that we often feel. Sadness or grief, anger, desire, and fear. And these are the ones that I hear again and again. One variation of anger is the fact when it's directed against ourselves, it comes as self-judgment. We become disappointed and blame ourselves, and that's where self-judgment comes in. So these are kind of the five big ones that we hear a lot, and shame and guilt are also uh, significant for people. As we explore these states, and I want to go through these um, four or five tonight, um, I want to look at three facets of them. If they're strong, they'll be felt in the body. So in coming to to relate to one of these emotions, the first place to look is how does it feel in the body? This is a good place to ground the attention because it's usually a very concrete object and easy to find. So we'll talk about that. The next one is to look at the, um, the mood that's in the mind. There's a coloring or a flavor that's a mental piece. You know how joy feels different than sadness. Fear feels different than hope. There's a mood that each of these have. So we want to get familiar with it. It's kind of a taste. Each has a unique taste or flavor. And that's a mental component. That's of the mind, not of the body. And the third thing is, what's the storyline? The belief or thought or view that props the emotion up, which if we didn't believe it, the emotion couldn't continue. So I'll talk about these, these four or five and how these components reveal themselves. So first, desire or wanting. You know, this is wanting a pleasant uh, experience. Comes up often in a retreat, especially in the early part, the desire is often about things we've left behind. We want something from home that isn't here. A person, a food, a comfy chair, a 
TV, a movie, a record, something like that. And we find our fantasies going there, sometimes quite a lot, especially in the early phase of a retreat. And tune in when it comes, tune into the energy of this wanting, because there's something nice about it. And the nice is that pleasant experience. We don't have it. In fact, the environment here is pretty austere. The time between pleasant experiences is sometimes rather large, you know, like one lunch to the next. (laughs) So pleasure becomes kind of a, a big deal. So it's very understandable if it's not there, the mind will bring it in. We'll bring in something pleasant and it's like comforting ourselves by thinking of something pleasant. So notice that there's a pleasant quality to these desires that's a little bit comforting, but is it satisfying? And this is the other side of desire. There's always something a little frustrating in wanting because we don't have the thing. There's a separation from the thing we want. It doesn't, the image of it isn't the same as the thing, and it doesn't satisfy us in the same way. So that's the uh, kind of bittersweet nature of desire. There's something pleasant, and also there's some frustration involved in it. It's not as satisfying as the present moment, but that's one of the things we have to learn about it. And this frustrating quality is intrinsic in desire because we never want what we already have. Have you noticed? You ever want a hand at the end of your arm? That doesn't really come up, does it? But if you didn't have it, you'd really miss it. But we never want that because we have it. So some years ago, I was teaching a retreat in Italy and this question of desire came to the fore. A young man came in um, early on in the retreat for an interview And I really loved the interviews with the Italian yogis because they had this kind of fluency with their emotions that I didn't have um, before I started meditating. They tended to know what they were feeling, and they were very, for the most part, very comfortable with it and um, able to talk about it and report it quite easily. I mean, it's a little bit the stereotype of the Italian character, but I found it true in the meditative setting. So it was a delight to, to talk with them. So this young guy comes in and he says, well, I asked him how he was settling in. He said, I'm not doing very well. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I really want to be here. And I said, well, what's going on? What, what comes up? He said, well, I think I'd rather be somewhere else. I said, well, well, why are you here? And he said, well, this is August. It's our holiday time. And my friends asked me to go on a trip with them to the Caribbean. Or I could come to this meditation retreat. I said, okay, why did you come here? And he said, all the tickets to the Caribbean were sold out. (laughs) So I came here. So uh, I get it. So we're the consolation prize. He said, yeah, and I just keep thinking about my friends there. And, you know, the beautiful beaches and the blue waters and the sunshine. I just don't really want to be here. (laughs) So what we talked about was this nature of desire, how maybe it's not the absence of the Caribbean that's the problem, it's the wanting for the Caribbean that's the problem. And if you could let go of these images of the sand and the water and the sun 
and just be here, maybe it would be okay here. So try that. See if that would be all right. So then I didn't see him again for a couple of days, but by the next interview, he came again, we spoke, he was totally fine. He'd been able to let go of the desire, and then he'd really landed, and it was great. So when desire is an obstacle, you know, it's sometimes helpful to remember, it's not the absence of the object that's the problem. It's the wanting for it. And that's one way of releasing. Because the storyline is something like, if I had that, I'd be happy. And then we keep telling ourselves that storyline. You know, and in the, the corollary is, I can't be happy because I don't have it. So if we let go of the object and we don't have the storyline, then maybe we can be happy. That's the lesson with desire. After we've been here for a while, the desire force gets tuned more toward things in the retreat. And especially it gets tuned around meditative experience. So we find ourselves really wanting that sitting that was calm and collected, or the one where the body didn't hurt, or the walking meditation where we had unlimited loving kindness for all sentient beings everywhere. (laughs) And those are the things that desire forms around. And sometimes it's hard to pick up because um, it's so much a part of the fabric of our life. So we come and sit, and we're in some kind of conflict, but it's sometimes hard to know what it is. With desire, I look for a kind of leaning forward tension, like I'm moving towards something, and that's that kind of future pull towards something. And sometimes I don't even know what it is, but I'll feel like this pull out of the moment, which is different than that settled back feeling. And that will clue me in. There's some kind of wanting moving forward, leaning into, going on. And then I'll look at my thoughts. And I'll say, well, what have I been thinking about? Oh, I was thinking about a concentrated sitting. And then I'll realize, oh, I'm wanting concentration. And then it's easier to really, oh, just here now. Just come into this moment. Anger is... um, One of the difficult forces to work with, Andrea talked about this um, quite a bit the other night. I won't go over it a lot. But as you feel anger, um, generally connected to some episode in the past, notice first how it feels in the body. And often with anger, there's a, a strong sensation of tension, contraction, kind of burning. It's often a fiery quality in the mind and can be really unpleasant. I was doing a metta retreat here one year, a long uh, six-week metta retreat, sitting it, and my difficult person was on the retreat with me. And so our paths would often cross during the day. And when I'd cross paths with them, I'd start going, just think about what they did this past year. And we had had different kinds of conflict, over the year, and I'd just think about the way they behaved. And I'd start getting stirred up, and I'd get angry, and I'd go back to my room and sit, and I'd be angry for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, and sort of move through, and then get back to the metta, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. (laughs) Then we'd cross paths again. I can't believe they acted that way. And I'd go to sit, and I'd be stirred up. And as I was getting more sensitive and more open with the metta, My body was really open and my mind was really bright. And then this anger would come in and I'd just feel the contraction so strongly. 
was so painful. I felt like my body was being held by these vice grips. And finally, it just became so unpleasant, I, I would do anything to get out of it. How do I get out of this? So I started looking at those blaming thoughts. The th- storyline with anger is basically, I'm right and you're wrong. And every time we think another thought and believe it, we throw another log on the fire. So I kept building the fire up hotter and hotter, and I kept suffering from it. When I could stop the blaming thoughts, the fire went away. You know, it died down, went away. So the only thing that could persuade me to let go of the blaming thoughts was the pain I was in from the anger. So look closely when anger is there, how it feels. It's not pleasant. In the text, it's compared to someone picking up a hot coal to throw it at another person. But of course, before you can throw it, you have to pick it up and then you burn yourself. And it's also compared in the text to drinking poison and hoping the other person falls ill. Often the other person doesn't even know you're upset, right? It's just hurting you. Of course, sometimes, you know, this storyline of I'm right and you're wrong, sometimes it's true. And those are the hardest ones to let go of. Sometimes it's really clear somebody has done something unskillful and really has hurt us in an an unkind way. So I'll tell you this little story from the Dalai Lama. He left Tibet in 1959 to escape to India. And at the time that he left, he had known a monk in one of the monasteries. And he judged the monk to be a rather average practitioner. And then he escaped to India in 59, established uh, his center in Dharamsala. About 25 years later, this monk escaped after being in prison for many years. He escaped to India, and as many of the escaped Tibetans do, he managed to see the Dalai Lama very soon after he arrived. Dalai Lama loves to welcome the Tibetans who have gotten out of their country to India. So he met the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama, of course, was very concerned for him and said, well, I heard that you were in prison for uh, 20 years. And Dalai Lama was worried that you know, he may have been tortured. At least he wasn't killed, but terrible things happen in those prisons. So um, he said, how did you fare? And the monk said, well, I often uh, felt that I was in danger. And the Dalai Lama said, do you mean you were, you were in danger of, you worried about being in danger of being tortured? And the monk said, oh, I was tortured, but that's not what I meant. I was in danger of becoming angry. He said, but I didn't. In prison for 20 years, tortured often, didn't generate anger. The Dalai Lama said he had to revise his opinion of the monk's practice. That's an awesome level of practice. It's not something I feel capable of, but it points to us at a human potential. And so maybe when somebody cuts in front of us on the freeway, we can sort of remember that as an inspiration. We may be right that they were wrong, but maybe we can let go of our anger. This quality of uh, self-judgment, James talked a lot about the other night, so I'm not, uh, not going to talk about that 
tonight. Just to say that it comes up frequently for people on retreat and the tools of mindfulness and especially loving kindness can be really transformative in working um, with this quality. So if this is up for you, please talk to your teachers about it. There are lots of great ways to work with it and it can make our whole level of self-trust and self-confidence entirely different. So it's a great one to work with. Um, Sadness or grief, another of the difficult primal emotions arising out of a sense of loss. Often the feeling in the body is a kind of um, heaviness and the tone in the mind is kind of dark and, and burdensome. And the belief, the storyline is something like, I can't be happy because I've lost this. Can't be happy because of the loss. And if we keep believing that, that perpetuates the sense of burden or weight that's in the mind. But sometimes opening to sadness is difficult because we might feel like it's so big. It might be carrying a lifetime of disappointments that we haven't ever really been able to open to or let ourselves feel. And there's the worry, if I open to this, I'm going to drown under it. I'm going to get lost in it. I'll never make my way out. But that's just another belief. That's just another thought. And with sadness, as with anything else, we just need to open little by little and feel it. And as we open to feel it, every time we contact it with mindful attention, it releases a little bit of the weight of it. And it's really the bringing into consciousness, touching it with awareness, letting go, that starts to allow these emotions to move through. And this is how grief and loss get processed also. And finally, with fear. I love to talk about fear because it was my main hindrance for the early years of my practice, and I worked with it a lot. One of the breakthroughs for me was when one of my teachers, and I think it was Joseph, said in a, in a talk that in order to begin to develop this allowing attitude with fear, we needed to open to the body sensations that came with it. So I'd had fear come up a lot. Every time it came, I hated it. I didn't want anything to do with it. And it made me more afraid. I was really afraid to feel my fear. So I couldn't move to open to the whole thing at all. But my teacher said, open to the body sensations and see if you can allow and bear those. So I started to feel those. I started to feel the contraction in the stomach, the kind of fluttery energy, the lack of grounding that came up into the, into the chest and the head, that shakiness that goes with fear. And I asked myself, can I bear this? And then I learned something kind of interesting because the storyline in fear is that this moment may be bearable, but in the next moment it's not going to be. Something disastrous is about to happen. So be on your guard, because you may be okay now, but you're not going to be for long. Watch out. And that's where that vigilance comes from. You know, if you've carried fear for a while, there's a vigilance about, I can't trust the world. It's not safe. 
that part of the vigilance really came through to me one evening. I was um, meditating in England. I was sitting a long retreat in England. And I was doing standing meditation before the Dharma talk. And it was one of these really incredibly beautiful, soft summer evenings where it had been a warm day and the warmth of the day was still in the air. I was standing out by an apple tree in the back. You know, it was full of leaves and the apples were growing and the, um, the doves were calling in the distance and there was just this soft twilight. And I was standing with my eyes closed and I was in this pattern of fear. I thought, wow, everything's so scary. My body's scary, my mind's scary. And then I opened my eyes and I opened my ears and I tuned into that incredibly beautiful and gentle and nourishing English summer twilight. I just went, wow, it's really a scary world, isn't it? (laughs) And it was so clear the whole thing was just a projection of my mind. The world wasn't threatening. It was beautiful and supportive. So there's a storyline that we create that's gotten embedded somewhere. Something disastrous is going to happen. But if we can come back into the present and feel the sensations as a starting point, we find we can bear those. Then I could open and feel that quality in the mind, the mood that's fear. That was harder. Because the essence of fear is run away from. Run away from it. And so it, it wanted to run away from the feeling of fear. So it was very hard for me to bring mindfulness to touch the emotion of fear directly. But then finally I could do that. And then that became bearable. So the whole experience became okay, but I also wanted to get out of it as soon as I could. And then my teacher said something else. He said, if you really accept it, it would be okay if this fear was with you for the rest of your life. So I had to ask myself that question, and that kind of became the acid test. Would it be okay if this fear was here for the rest of my life? And the answer was obvious. Hell no. (laughs) No way. I couldn't take that. And so I asked myself, well, why? Why couldn't I allow that? And I thought, I could never listen to music the same again if I was always scared. I could never have this kind of merging experience with a sunset if I was scared. I could never fall in love again if I was scared. So I'm not going to give those things up. And I didn't. So I kept clashing with fear. I couldn't really accept it that deeply. And finally, it, it wore me out. The fighting with it wore me out. And I thought I can either find peace now, or I can cling to these hopes of future gratification. Which would I rather have? And finally, I wanted peace now. And I said, okay, if this lasts the rest of my life, it's all right. And when I opened to it that fully, something in the power of fear just started to drain out of my mind. And it lost some kind of grip over me. Some kind of obsessive relationship went out of my relationship with fear. And fear has come again many times, but it's never had that kind of grip 
in my mind because I learned how to be with it so fully with so much equanimity, I really didn't care if it arose or not. Really didn't care. Didn't matter to me one way or another. And so if you develop this kind of relationship with your main hindrance, whichever one it is, you'll learn a lot about how to open to all the hindrances and the kind of freedom that's available through that. So you don't have to go through such a struggle with every one, but by learning from one, you'll find out how to relate to all of them. And then a great deal of freedom opens up in the mind because we're not afraid of our emotions so much anymore. We find that space that lets them all come and go. So I want to close with a poem from uh, Rilke, the German poet, um, from a small book of his called The Book of Hours. And a little bit of a setup to this. Rilke was in a very religious uh, phase in his early 20s. And this book came out of that period. And so this is about an image where as each of us is created by God, God gives us a little pep talk before he launches us into this human life. So this is the pep talk. God speaks to each of us as he makes us then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your memory, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Now give me your hand. So let's just sit for a minute together, please. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.